Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a Dallas-based wine educator and writer. I'm not a Texas wine insider. I'm an enthusiastic consumer. On this podcast, I take a look into the Texas wine industry and give you all the news, education, and information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. I'm learning more with every episode, and I thank you for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is Episode 7. On today's episode, I've got two interviews for you, and they're both about wine distribution. One is with Derek Rogers of Serendipity Wines. He will help us understand how wine distribution works in Texas. Then I'll talk with Eric Sigmund, who's the Chief Operating Officer for Ready Vineyards. Ready currently self-distributes rather than working with a distributor, and Eric will talk us through what that entails. Eric's interview is filled with tips that will be useful to wineries and anyone involved in wine sales. I'll also tell you all about my recent harvest experience in the Hill Country. But first, Texas wineries are in the news. Save Texas Wineries is a new political action committee that was formed by a number of wineries that are trying to get some traction with the governor's office during this tasting room shutdown. If you haven't already, I encourage you to visit their website to check out the full list of participating wineries, tour companies, and other. You'll recognize a lot of the names behind this effort, like Brennan, Narrow Path, Messinahoff, Cicada Cellars, Grape Creek, Lost Oak, Texas Heritage, Bent Oak, and others. The immediate goal is to reopen tasting rooms. And there are three main ways that you can contribute to this effort. Number one is to donate through a participating winery. The website allows you to select a winery or a tour company to channel your donation through. A donation of at least $50 is suggested. The second way is to advocate. They've made it really easy to send a form letter that you can customize to your elected officials. It has important talking points about the importance of Texas wineries to the economy. And the third way is to follow and share using the hashtag SaveTexasWineries on social media. Patrick Whitehead, the president of Twiga, sent a letter to the Twiga membership last week asking members to join in welcoming this newly formed group. He states that its purpose is to, and I quote, to support candidates and office holders who share our vision of a Texas with laws that promote rather than inhibit the growth and prosperity of the Texas wine industry and to encourage public support of the industry and related businesses. Twiga is wholly supportive of and pleased to partner with this newest initiative. We ask all Twiga members and Texas wine industry supporters to get involved with Save Texas Wineries as we work together to continue navigating these tempestuous pandemic waters, end quote. I'm going to be interviewing Roxanne Myers of Lost Oak Winery in Burleson. She's the president-elect of Twiga and will be talking to me about Save Texas Wineries. I'll be releasing that interview immediately after it's recorded, So watch for the next podcast episode very soon. In the meantime, please go to www.savetexaswineries.com to see how you can get involved. The advocacy piece is critical, so please use the online system to contact your elected representatives and donate if you're able. Tangy Patton shared a segment about Texas wine and it aired on CBS Austin last week. I know a lot of Texans are familiar with Tangi. Her segments called Good Taste with Tangi air in 15 markets across Texas. This latest episode was designed to showcase some Texas wines that could be purchased to help out Texas wineries that are suffering with their tasting rooms closed. 
At the beginning, she says that these are wines from Texas that you can find at HEB. And she also suggests that you might want to take a trip out to visit wineries or to order wines online or join the wine club. And these are great suggestions, of course. Unfortunately, there's a problem with one of the wines that she's got in her lovely backyard setup. See if you can catch the problem here. Things start off fine with a nice wine from Becker. But then she moves on to the Cardinal Reserve. She says, this is the San Antonio Winery's Cardinal Reserve. Now, the grapes, according to the bottle, aren't coming from Texas. They're coming from the West Coast. But it is the San Antonio Winery. So it is another one of our wines being produced in Texas. The grapes, however, appear to be grown out of the state. Then she moves on to wines from Messina Hoff, William Chris, and Petternal. Okay, so did you catch that? The San Antonio Winery? Does that ring a bell? San Antonio Winery sure sounds like it would be a Texas winery. But in fact, San Antonio Winery is the oldest winery in downtown Los Angeles. And it also has locations in Paso Robles and on and Ontario. Actually, the wine on the table was not labeled Texas. It's labeled American. There's one main legal requirement for a wine that's labeled American, and that's that 75% of the fruit has to come from the United States. That means that 25% of the fruit can be bulk juice from out of the country. Or the wine can have grapes from two states, with no state making up 75%. And rather than give it a label like California-Washington, the producer chose to use the American label instead. Anyway, it's not a Texas wine, and it may not even be fully American. Now, I feel for Tangi because I'd be willing to bet that she may not have even selected these wines. Someone on her staff may have done it for her. I'm about to tell a story on my husband, and I guess I'll find out if he listens to this episode of the podcast. A few years ago, he was doing live TV. He was talking about what to eat for cancer prevention, and someone else had filled a table with all kinds of different foods that help prevent cancer. It was all kinds of stuff like fruits and vegetables, nuts and grains. And one of the items was a box of quinoa. Quinoa is spelled Q-U-I-N-O-A, so it's not exactly pronounced like it looked. Well, he had glanced at the table, but then when he was on live TV and he was talking about all the different items, he picked up the box of quinoa. And he tried to say it, but he just had a momentary lapse. And what he said sounded nothing at all like quinoa. My husband still hasn't lived that down years later. And maybe Tangie's friends will be giving her a hard time about the San Antonio winery years from now as well. The keeper saw Fizzy Vit won gold at the 2020 International Canned Wine Competition. It was the only Texas winery to win gold, and it won in the sparkling white wine category. Fizzy Vit is a collaboration with Spetzel Brewery in Shiner, Texas. If Spetzel sounds familiar, that's because it's the brewery that brings you Shinerbach beer. Fizzy Vit uses Shiner yeast. Yep, the same yeast that's used in the iconic Texas beer brand. The yeast kicks off a secondary fermentation that results in the fizz in the Vit. This semi-sweet bubbly comes in four packs of 187 milliliter cans. It's a single vineyard estate-grown wine made from 50% black Spanish grapes, 30% Sangiovese, 10% Blanc du Bois, and 10% Muscat. And it's 13.8% alcohol by volume. It's very interesting. It won in the white wine category, but it's made from 80% red grapes. I guess that means that how the grapes are processed determines what category the wine falls into for judging, rather than what color the grape skins are. This canned wine is available on the Keepersall website to ship. 
in a case of 24 cans for $99 with free shipping. It's also available at Brookshire's and several other retails. Keepersall says additional distribution is forthcoming. Former Keepersall winemaker Michael McClendon had a great write-up in the Dallas Morning News recently. He's featured in an article called Science Whiz-Turned-Winemaker Launches Award-Winning Custom Crush Facility in East Texas. Michael started as an intern at Keepersall in 2008 and was promoted to winemaker in 2012. In 2017, McClendon and partner Wes Jensen founded Sage's Vintage, a custom crush facility in Nacogdoches. Read all about their focus on quality Texas winemaking. I'll link to the article in the show notes. Last week, I attended a groundbreaking at the new site for Sibonet Cellars, a winery that has been co-located with Hawk Shadow Winery in Dripping Springs since it was founded in 2017 by Miguel and Barbara Lacuona. In 2019, Miguel and Barbara partnered with Bill and Marianne Waldrop and purchased a 52-acre site for a new winery on 290, just west of Johnson City, immediately next to Lewis Wines. The 52-acre lot is going to be quite a site, according to the plans I saw. There will be vineyards installed by Bill Blackman's Vineyard Management Group, a full-production winery, and a tasting room that's built into an elevated limestone terrace. There are some cool features like a bioswale that will filter water that's used in wine production before it's drained back into the earth. The ceremony I attended was really special, and I told Miguel that I feel like I'll be invested in the future of the winery. Miguel delivered some prepared remarks, and he talked about courage and how partner Marianne Waldrop had demonstrated remarkable courage for the past 18 months. He talked about the meaning behind the different elements on their label, from the quatrefoil label shape that is from a stained glass window in a cathedral in Havana, to the bud that's actually a photo of Cabernet Sauvignon that Miguel took in Bordeaux. Everything had a lot of symbolism. And by the way, the name Sibonet speaks to the journey of the owners, and it's embodied in several meanings of the word, including a song written by Ernesto Lecuona, Miguel's great uncle. The song was also sung by Bing Crosby and Placido Domingo, and it's also on the Buena Vista Social Club soundtrack. The name Sibonet also refers to the ancestral name of Cuba, and it has a few other meanings as well. Then after the prepared remarks, the four partners sabered some of the new sparkling wine on the site. I tasted this wine later, and I ended up taking some home. It's a crown cap sealed 100% Sangiovese Rosé sparkling wine from the Texas High Plains, and it was delicious. I hadn't previously had the Sibonet wines, but I got to try them later at a trade tasting at Brian's on 290 after the groundbreaking. Daniel Collada hosted that event, and of course, Barbara is the winemaker, and the wines were just lovely, and it was um, so nice to see some familiar faces and meet a lot of new folks as well. They also had two dinners at Brian's on 290, so it was just a wonderful celebratory weekend for Sibonet and the new partnership to kick off what is sure to be an exciting period of building and creating a wonderful new space there on 290. I really got a sense of what their brand is about. I had never met any of the partners before, nor had I tasted any of their wines. But I really dig what they're doing, and I can't wait to see how this new space comes together. Congratulations to the new partners in this endeavor. I published a new article on the Texas Wine Lover website last week about a new winery opening. It's the Triple N Ranch Winery, located in the Cedar Creek Lake area in Henderson County. 
It's named for the three women who are 7th, 8th, and ninth generation Texans, respectively. They want the winery to be a place where their extended family and the East Texas community can celebrate great Texas wine and food. In my research for the article, I had the opportunity to meet and talk with Michelle Anderson and her husband, Richard. They're Dallas residents. They've been taking classes out at Grayson College in viticulture and enology. And they are also family friends with uh, Richard Becker. And so they've had a lot of advice from him, as well as from the folks that operate Barnhill up in Anna, Texas. So they anticipate Triple N Ranch Winery as being a place where the residents and visitors in the Cedar Creek Lake area can come on the weekends for tastings and for concerts. It looks like a beautiful space. I can't wait to get out there. They've been working with Michael McClendon out at Sage's in making wines, and they've got already a full lineup of wines. They've also worked with John Rivenberg on a new rosé. So they've already swung their gates open for concerts. Soon they'll also be planting a vineyard. They're going to be planting two of the new UC Davis hybrids that are Pierce's disease resistant. That will be happening in the spring. So check that out on the Texas Wine Lover website. And that's the Texas Wine News. You may not know that I'm a wine educator, and thanks to the pandemic, I am now doing wine education for groups anywhere via Zoom. If that's something you're interested in, please reach out to me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. I recently did a class for a group in College Station, and I was able to find out what wines were available to them at retail, and I developed a class with four wines. One person purchased the wines and divided them into smaller bottles. And then the participants picked up wines from a cooler on her porch. There are plenty of ways this can be done in a socially distant and safe way. Of course, I love to talk to groups about Texas wine, but there are other options as well. Let me know if that's something I can help you with. Again, that email is texaswinepod at gmail.com. So I've just returned from a weekend retreat in the Hill Country. And not only did I get to attend the Cibonet Cellars groundbreaking, I also got to do my first Hill Country Harvest. Now, I'd done a harvest before up in the Texoma AVA, closer to where I live in Dallas, and that one was at Square Cloud Winery in Gunter, Texas. This one was at Abastris Winery in Stonewall. I had seen Abastris's post on Instagram asking for harvest volunteers, and so I emailed the winery to tell them I was coming. Now, I had never been there, but I thought, sure, why not? I'd heard of Abastris, and I just decided that that sounded like a great way to spend my Saturday morning. I'd been wanting to get out there, and I knew that John Rivenberg was a consulting winemaker, and I had talked with him previously for the podcast. Strangely enough, during my interview with Michelle Anderson for the Triple N Ranch Winery, she mentioned that her son was the godfather to Ab Astros' winemaker, Mike Nelson's oldest child. So it's a very small world in Texas wine. And I didn't even know how small until I started talking with Mike later, and then come to find out he attended the same school that my daughters go to. And also my sister-in-law was one of his law school professors. So it's a super small world, but it's a lot of fun making those connections. 
Anyway, it seemed like fate that I would go visit. So Friday afternoon, the day before the harvest, I went out to taste some wines at Abastris. It's located off of 290. The address is Stonewall, but it's really close to the high market, just behind William Chris, which is in high. It's a lovely property. I sat there outside and enjoyed my wines, and I talked with Mike's wife, Kristen, and her sister, Catherine, and I got to meet their mother, Erin, too. Erin and Tony Smith are the owners of Abastris. Abastris means of the stars. The winery opened in 2018, and they make about 4,500 cases of wine from the estate vineyard there, and also from some of the key vineyard sources in the High Plains. I did some research about the winery on Texas Wine Lover before I arrived, so I would know a little bit about what I was getting into. And I went crazy over their Cabernet Sauvignon. I'm not usually the biggest fan of Cabernet Sauvignon from from anywhere, really. Um, But it, it is perhaps my favorite Texas Cabernet Sauvignon. It was lovely. It's from the family vineyard in the Texas High Plains. I was not previously familiar with that vineyard. So the next morning... I arrived for harvest about 6.30, and by 7, we had had some donuts and kolaches and coffee, and we were getting some instructions. So Mike Nelson, I mentioned, is the winemaker, and he is Tony and Aaron's son-in-law. Mike told us we would be harvesting Chossau, a Portuguese grape variety that's a tinturier. That means it has red flesh. Unlike most grapes that have clear flesh inside, therefore clear juice, There are about 8 to 10 in the world out of 10,000 that have red flesh. And Chaussau is one of them. So it produces really dark, inky wines. Usually it's used in port production. But the grapes that we harvested were going to be made into a varietal wine. Chaussau is known for being drought tolerant, so it's great for Texas. And it's also heat resistant. This was the last fruit hanging in the Abastris Vineyard, so it was easy to tell which rows we needed to pick. We had 20 rows to pick, and we actually made it through 15. There were about 30 volunteers there. Most people came with family members or friends, but there were a couple of us there that were solo. I enjoyed getting to know people both during the picking and then afterwards at lunch. I got to meet Stuart from Wine on the Dime, which is a YouTube channel, I had been chatting with him on social media, and I also got to meet Lisa, who's getting a winemaking certificate from UC Davis. These were the instructions that Mike gave us at the outset. Pick all of the grape clusters, even if they're raisined. They all add to the final wine. He said, don't get leaves in the bucket. The grapes will be de-stemmed, but they need to go in without leaves. Watch out for wasps and rabbit holes. We don't want any broken ankles. Be aware of your surroundings. You can work on both sides of a row, but don't work on both sides of the same vine. That's how accidents happen, and someone can lose a finger. This rule was promptly ignored, but people were careful. And drink water and take breaks when you need to. Some people were asked to be leaf pullers, and these people were really the MVPs of the day. I discovered that it is so much easier to pick grapes when somebody has gone before you and cleared out some of the leaves. The people that did that job were onto something, too, because that job doesn't require that you bend over, squat, twist, bend, or hunch over. So it's a smart move for preserving your back. And next time, I will know. Another job was to be a runner, to carry full buckets of grapes to the end of the very, very long rows to be dumped into bins. Thankfully, there was a very energetic and polite 12-year-old boy who was happy to do that job. 
The rest of us sat on overturned 10-gallon buckets and used pruning shears to collect clusters of grapes and dump them into another 10-gallon bucket. Unlike the other harvest experience I had in the Texoma AVA in far, far north Texas, there was a large group of harvesters, 30 or so, and the experienced ones came with all kinds of paraphernalia. They had cushioned hoppers to sit on the top of their buckets, motorized fans, speakers for their music, hip slings for their water bottles, and hats with neck flaps. The smart people wore sunscreen, used bug sprays, and stayed well hydrated. Keep myself occupied during the times when the job got monotonous. I tasted a grape. It was really tannic and not very sweet, and it had a lot of crunchy, toasty seeds. I took a few photos, and I talked up this podcast to whoever was near me. I have no idea how winemakers can taste a grape and imagine what the final wine will taste like. To me, it just tasted kind of disgusting. Just when the sun started to beat down and I started to wonder what time it was, I heard Aaron yell, lunchtime. I was really happy to sit down with my new friends, a glass of rosé, a plate of sandwiches and veggies and chips, and yes, grapes. Thinking back to the quality of our work, it seemed a little haphazard. And the perfectionist in me hoped that somewhere there was quality control to make one last pass through to make sure we didn't leave a big chunk of grapes unpicked somewhere. I also felt bad that we didn't finish all 20 rows. Abastris put out another call for harvest volunteers for the next morning, but I slept in and then headed back to Dallas. I turned on the heat warmer on my seat because my back was hurting, even though it was 105 degrees outside. I should have paid more attention to Mike's method. He sat on his bucket the whole time and didn't hunch over like I did. I only used that seated method of picking part of the time. The rest of the time, I just kind of bent down, and that was a bad idea. It was great to have Mike in the vineyard the whole time, and he didn't seem to get too annoyed by everyone's incessant questions. I was surprised by how many first-time harvesters were out there. A lot of them were wine club members, or they came with a family member or a friend. One guy said it was his first time, but then later I noticed that he was driving a tractor and seemed to be part of the regular team, so I think maybe he was telling me a story. Also, the harvesters were a bit older than I would have expected, maybe because it starts so early. I would definitely recommend that people have an experience with the harvest. It'll make you appreciate your wine more. If you're going to be in the hill country on a weekend in mid-July through mid-August, there's a good chance that you can participate in a harvest somewhere. The best way to find out about one is to follow wineries on social media. Most wineries use the hashtag TXWine on their posts, so search for that hashtag on Instagram or Facebook. Of course, the coolest part will be when the 2020 Ab Asterisk Chassau is released. You can bet I'll be the first in line to buy the wine from the grapes I helped harvest. By the way, I was recently on a call when someone asked how many grapes it takes to make a bottle of wine. My answer was around 800. Upon further research, I found estimates that range from 400 to 1,200. I'm going to stick with around 800. If anyone wants to test that out, please let me know what you find. My guests on this episode are both going to talk about wine distribution. Have you ever wondered how our wine gets from the winery to the wine shop or restaurant? and who decides which wines are featured in a store or on a wine list. I thought it would be interesting to look at this topic from the perspective of both a distributor and a winery. Derek Rogers is up first. He's the Associate Director of Sales for North Texas for Serendipity Wines. 
Serendipity is a medium-sized wine distribution company that has six Texas wineries in their book, including the Austin Winery, Bending Branch, C.L. Buteau, Dandy, Lewis Wines, and The Grower Project. Derek works with a team to service a group of higher-end restaurants and wine shops. He's also the North Texas ambassador for the Rosenthal Portfolio. Derek doesn't work directly with Texas wineries, but he's spent a number of years with wine distribution companies in Texas, and I thought he could give us some good general information about the role of a wine distributor. He also has some interesting insights into how COVID has shifted the wine distribution business. Then up next is Eric Sigmund, Chief Operating Officer at Ready Vineyards. Among Eric's many roles at Ready Vineyards is the task of sales and distribution. Ready has been self-distributing their wines since they came on the market in 2019. With Eric at the helm, Ready has built over 80 different accounts in wine shops and on restaurant lists across the state of Texas. Ready is making a change this fall and will be entering into a distribution agreement. Eric will share his top five tips for wineries that will help gain placements. This interview has so many great tips that I know will be useful to wineries and anyone that's involved in wine sales. Here's Derek Rogers of Serendipity Wines. Well, on this podcast, we have talked about buying wines directly from wineries, which Mm -hmm. of course is important. We've talked about buying wines at grocery stores. We've talked about buying wines at independent retail shops of all kinds. And we've talked about um, ordering wines from restaurant wine lists, but we've never talked about how wines get to shops and how wines arrive on restaurant wine lists. So I was hoping that maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Well, that is exactly what I do. So, um, you know, I've, I've, I've spent some time with, um, with I started my career in, in distribution with, with Southern Glaciers. Um, and then I worked for Republic for, for a minute. And um, I've been with Serendipity for uh, a year and change. Um, I think it was a year in March, I want to say. So what, what I really enjoy doing, what I really enjoy about my job is to kind of survey the restaurant or the account and look at, you know, the food they serve, the, 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 the cuisine, and then... Um, you know, try and uh, and find wines that kind of make sense. Um, our company is is not huge. You know, we're not one of the big big uh, companies, and so we kind of deal with predominantly family owned uh, wineries, which I think is really really important. Um, you know, wineries that have been open for sometimes decades, sometimes you know when you go into the old world, obviously late eighteen hundreds sometimes, and um, and I find that we kind of uh, specialize in, in 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 wines that really aren't everywhere, wines that aren't in grocery. Essentially, what I'll do is just kind of look at the wine list and figure out kind of what wines make sense for that account. And then we have to look at price point. We have to look at availability. Um, you know, sometimes things are super, super small production. Sometimes they're not. And, um, and you know, some, some buyers are a little more sensitive to um, kind of want to know what is at Kroger and what is at Whole Foods and Central Market. And sometimes they don't want those wines on their wine list. Because there's a perception um, with the public sometimes where if they look at your wine list and go, you're charging me 12 bucks a glass for this Pinot Noir, and I can buy it for 11 bucks a bottle at Kroger up the street, like, what's the deal with that? People don't seem to understand the, the, the disconnect there, I think, with TABC taxes and insurance and liability and, and you know, having to pay your back a house and, and all the costs that kind of go into running a restaurant, basically. Sure. So your job is to really get the wine from the winery to the shop or the restaurant where it will be sold. 
Yeah, so in essence, we'll have wineries that'll reach out to us and and find um, that our our distribution system kind of makes sense for what they do, and we'll partner with them, and um, and then we will uh, essentially be tasked with going out and selling their wines, and they'll come to the market themselves, whether they're local or, or you know international or California or whatever it is, do what we call a work with, and they'll jump in the car with a rep and go see a handful of accounts over the course of a day, and 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 kind of talk about that. Now. Keep in mind that everything that I'm saying right now is contentious on um, being pre-COVID. <laughs> Everything's changed. The world is completely upside down. And truthfully, the, the business model of what we do as a company has, has completely changed, as it has, it has with everyone. So um, I just, I'm thinking about that because I just said work with. There, there's no work with. So we, don't, we haven't done that since probably February or January. And I'm guessing uh, restaurants aren't looking for new wines to put on their wine list right now. That's true. Yeah. For what I've found for the most part is, you know, A, if the restaurant's even open, because, you know, typically speaking, um, if, if you're dealing with smaller kind of family-owned independent restaurants that, that don't have corporate backing, 25% does them no good when it comes to capacity. Um, 50% is even hard. A lot of restaurants still to this day are not open and haven't been this whole time. A lot of them are still doing kind of the curbside thing where they're doing like to-go foods and, and they're trying to sell wines that way. Um, I personally have about two or three on-premise accounts that are actually viably buying wine and tasting new things right now. I think, you know, obviously money is, is kind of everything. And so these places that, that maybe were closed for a while and then reopened, they're, they're sitting on a mound of wine that they bought back in January and February. And, you know, those wines aren't turning. They're not moving. So with that in mind, you're correct. They're, they're not super interested in, in tasting new things currently on, on the whole, I would say. And on-premise refers to restaurants in the distribution world. Off-premise yeah. would refer to people that buy wine in a shop of some kind and take it away to drink at home. If, yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, if you, uh, if you go into a wine shop and they, they have a buy-the-glass list and they pour by the glass, that's still considered on-premise. Um, there are lots of wine bars in town that have a retail license, but if they pour by the glass and you can sit there at the bar and have a glass of wine while you shop, um, that's considered on-premise. Okay. Off-premise is, is pretty much retail uh, specifically. Okay. So when a winery is considering working with a distributor, what would make them think that they might be a good candidate to work with a distributor? Is it a, the size of the winery or a certain production level? I mean, yes and no. I mean, sometimes. Sometimes that doesn't really matter. Um, I think it depends on... I mean, truthfully, you're asking questions that are a little bit above my pay grade because I've never actually dealt with that aspect of the industry. But my gut says that, you know, if we have 35 Willamette Valley Pinot Noirs and you make one as well, there's a good chance you're going to be lost in the shuffle unless you have some kind of financial backing where you can incentivize um, people to, to sell your stuff. So I think the, the advantage with the smaller companies like us is, is that we, we can – pay a bit more attention to the, to the, you know, the, 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 the smaller guys and, um, and kind of focus, focus on, again, like if you make a carbonically macerated Sangiovese in Willamette Valley, that's pretty cool. And if the juice is good, then I'm going to take that to a unique account that truthfully, like, you know, those wines don't belong all over town. They need to be only in a handful of accounts where it really makes sense. That's kind of the forte of kind of what I do. I, I kind of try and try and focus a bit on the, uh, not necessarily the geekier aspects of it, but I think find, finding things that are a bit more unique and a bit more specialized 
because uh, it, it, it's all about the experience in the restaurant, right? It's all about like when you sit down and you're like, I've never even heard of Vermentino. What is this? And then you have one and then it blows your mind. And then you tell the next three dozen people that you run into and then the cycle continues, you know? I did notice that several of the Texas producers in your portfolio are kind of smaller brands that are a little uh, a little quirky, a little unique. And so yeah, I wondered definitely. if those types of producers may group together under serendipity. Although you you have six Texas producers, which is actually kind of a lot, because I mm-hmm. think there's there's one large distributor in Texas that has maybe 15 or so Texas yeah. labels, but then yeah. there aren't more than six that I'm aware of for any other distributor. So you may be I the second. I think that's probably true. Yeah, that's that's probably true. I think I think we have the best Texas book in the state. Honestly, um, I think we have, um, and this this kind of comes around to to probably the overall um, point of this podcast. I would imagine of of the mindset of Texas wine and how it's changed over the years. Historically speaking, for a long time, there was a lot of really really bad wine being made in Texas. I think there was a lot of people that were kind of um, in love with California and Napa in particular. And so they thought, well, we'll just grow, you know, Chardonnay and, and Cabernet here, and that'll be fine. And they don't realize that, you know, in Napa, when it's 90 degrees during the day, the sun goes down and it's 45. Um, you know, here it's 110 for 17 months a year. And then, you know, the sun goes down and it's 90. <laughs> so we don't quite have the diurnal shift. You know, grapes need to burn during the day and then go to sleep at night. That's that's kind of how uh, how the best wines are made. And that's why... The High Plains in Lubbock is kind of like, you know, one of the more ideal places because they actually do have a bit more of a shift and it kind of cools down there for a bit more. But, um, yeah, I think speaking to your point about the the Texas producers that we carry, I mean, we have some really um, exciting and young um, forward-thinking winemakers that are doing some really, really cool stuff here. We have guys like Doug Lewis, Lewis Wines. He's got land in the Hill Country and in the High Plains and... I mean, for my money, he's he's one of the best guys doing it right now, you know, sub 40 years old and growing grapes that, 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 that are native to Portugal and Spain, like Tinta Cao and Tariga Nacional and Tempranillo obviously does really well here in Texas. Um, but I think Doug's stuff is like really, I mean, he's, he's harvesting in like June, you know, because he wants to keep the alcohol low and like. He's, he's really, really great, you know, and then we have Randy Hester at CL Buteau doing really, really cool forward-thinking things. He's a really cool guy. Uh, Ray Wilson down in Austin, who's uh, doing the, I know you love that dandy rosé, that stuff's awesome. Um, she makes that. And yep. um, yeah, I don't know, we've, we've got like, I mean, she's, she's doing a project right now that she's carbonically macerating uh, Petite Syrah. Like, That's interesting. What? <laughs> you know, like anxious to try that. Really cool. Yeah, me too. Me too. Very, very interesting stuff. I wonder if this is the most Texas wines that have ever been in distribution. And does does demand customer demand drive how many wines are in distribution? Oh, certainly. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the more people we have asking for it, the more we do it. I mean, aside from I think having the best Texas book in in the state, I think we also have the biggest and best Mexican book in the state. We have a lot of producers from Baja California. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of see parallels between Texas and Mexican wine um, because I think they're, they're growing things that make sense for the area. I mean, I've got like Tempranillo Cabernet blends. I've got like Nebbiolo. I've got like things that you really don't see um, and, and wouldn't think of, of Mexico, you know, in that way. But um, I think that um, a lot of times, and, and this, is, this is the case with some Texas wines as well, not necessarily ones that we re- represent, but I think people, if you, if you 
overpriced your wine because you're trying. I mean, I, I understand the mindset of like making your money back and whatnot, but but if you if you start at a certain level, you know, it's going to be a bit unapproachable for for some people. So I think that's kind of a key thing as well as like making your wines like, you know, obviously we're all here to make money for sh- for sure, but I think if you can price your wines um, accordingly, then that's really kind of the kind of helpful as well, you know. And what is the pricing structure? Do you help people with their pricing when it goes into distribution at all? Because I know there it, it adds another layer of pricing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a obviously there's a there's a third party involved, there's a, a middleman, if you will. Um, I don't know the exact structure in terms of of um, of going fundamentally from the winery to distribution because I've just never I've never done that. Um, but I can tell you when it comes to like restaurants, like part of my job is kind of being like an informal consultant. And so what I'll do is, uh, go in and, and, and there's some buyers that are young and maybe just don't know, you know, quite how to, how to price things properly. So I, I always say, you know, if I sell you a, a $12, uh, Texas Tempranillo, then I would price that at 12 bucks a glass. And there's four glasses in a bottle. So you make your money after your first glass and then two glasses are profit. And the third or the, the fourth glass is going to be your overhead basically. Um, not exactly, but you know, that's kind of how it goes. And I think that's how you should price by the glass for by the bottle on the whole. I don't, I don't necessarily think that the, uh, the margins would be the same. I think it should be a little bit lower actually, because at that point you're, you're, you're getting people into drinking more wine, obviously. And, and, you know, in Texas, obviously when you don't finish a bottle, you can cork it and take it with you. If I sell you a bottle at 20 bucks, don't, don't do that steakhouse five time markup. I don't think that's a smart idea. I don't think, you know, a $20 bottle should be a hundred bucks. I think more two and a half, maybe even three times is kind of like the limit of what I like to see. And that just kind of encourages people to buy the bottles and then you have real estate on your shelf turning over so you can buy more wine from me. Well, I love it when people offer Texas wines by the glass, because if you haven't already tried it, it's a, just an easy way for people to, Absolutely. to take a small, small chance on it, maybe not go for the whole bottle. So do you help restaurants and or retail establishments with staff education? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I just did a staff training last week at one of my accounts. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll come in on usually like a, you know, Thursday or a Friday, right at pre-shift at 3.45, 4 o'clock. I'll, I'll, I'll pull a sample of the bottle that, that I've sold to the account, and I'll bring that. And then I'll pour it around the room. I'll bring, you know, tech sheets, and we'll talk about it. I don't I don't get try and get too geeky with it because I don't want to – I want to make it a, a, approachable. You know, we don't need to talk about pH levels in the soil with a, with a wait staff of, of 20 people. I want to talk to you about how you taste the wine, how you perceive the wine, and more importantly, how you would pair it with food on your list. And that's the important thing. And so the six or so Texas producers that are on your list, is that sold by a specific uh, person or team of people? Yeah, so we have brand managers that are kind of the conduits, if you will, between, say, me as a rep um, and the winery. So they're the ones that would speak to the winemakers and the wineries about new products they're bringing in or bringing in more of a specific product or, um, you know, talking to to a a specific account about maybe like a... uh, well, lately, virtual tastings have been kind of a big deal, you know, obviously, since we're not really getting together anymore. So the and, and they're the ones that deal with the pricing as well. So they kind of deal with inventory, availability, pricing and and um, and kind of dictating how much how much wine, you know, how much wine we're going to have in the state and also how much it's going to cost. I find it so interesting that we see the same Texas wines on restaurant lists over and over and over. 
And I don't know if that's just because those are larger production wines or they're just certain. Um, it depends. I mean, there's some there's some that are just old school Texas wines. I mean, you know, like McPherson, for instance, like those wines are, are pretty great. Um, but yeah, they're kind of like, you know, you're right. They're kind of everywhere. If you see Texas wine on a list, that's typically what you're going to see. That or like, you know, Lano Estacado or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with those wines at all. Um, I just think they're a little, uh, a little bit old school. And um, I think there's some new up-and-comers that are really making waves right now in Texas. I've seen a lot of criticism of the kind of farm-to-table movement that's happening in restaurants because farm-to-table doesn't seem to apply and the kind of locavore movement doesn't seem to apply when it comes to local wines. And so I hope the local wine movement will maybe catch up to what, the, what has happened in the local yeah. restaurant movement. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think our, our mindset as a company overall is we, we try and deal um, the most we can with wineries that are, you know, at least trying to be organic. A, a big part of what we do is trying to, trying to um, you know, work with wineries that, that, um, that actually kind of have a conscience when it comes to the environment and, and guys that are trying to, um, you know, leave it better than you, than you received it kind of thing, you know, um, without using herbicides and pesticides and things that are kind of harmful uh, to the environment, you know. Um, and I think a lot of the younger um, growers here in Texas are, are kind of adopting that mindset as well. You know, in Europe and the, in the old world, for the most part, that's kind of how they do things anyway. So you can get your, you know, Demeter certification and whatnot, but, but there's a lot of guys that are in Bordeaux and Burgundy that are just like, we've always done it this way. We don't need your certification. It doesn't really mean a lot. and It's really expensive. I've finally seen some backlash against the kind of clean wine movement in the the wine media. So just because you put something on the label that says you're clean doesn't necessarily mean you are. And just because it's not on your label doesn't mean you're not. So consumer beware. Well, and and there's also fads too, right? There's there's always going to be fads. There's always going to be trends that people try and jump on the, the popular train and make a little money while it's, you know, while it's going. So I think it's important. I think it's important to, uh, to try and keep it as natural and as, as clean as possible. I agree. We've heard so much lately about how restaurants have fared during COVID, but what are you seeing from your retail accounts? Huge, huge numbers. Uh, December numbers in March. I mean, like crazy. Um, Whether it's people have a bit more expendable income right now than I think they ever have um, because you're not going out and you're cooking at home now. And so with that in mind, and, and this affects my household as well, my wife and I definitely have been saving quite a bit of money during, during COVID from not going out so much. Um, and I think a lot of people are, are taking that money and going to independent wine shops and grocery and, uh, and they're, and they're buying a lot of wine. So I would say that, you know, on premise is probably down like between 60 and 80% right now. And I'd say retail is probably up a good 60 to 70% probably. So it's, it's, it's not exactly made up for it, but it's definitely helped for sure. That's interesting. So you maybe as a company are reallocating your staff people somewhat? Reallocating wine. There are some wineries that we've uh, that we work with that um, you know, pre-COVID times, they wanted 80% of their distribution to be in restaurants and and in wine bars. And, you know, they didn't want the big box specs and goody-goody to have access to those wines because they wanted to keep it on premise. Once COVID hit, everything was off the table. Because at the end of the day, we got to sell wine. So um, that was really interesting as well. And then another thing that I found was um, even especially with the, the Rosenthal book, you know, we have a lot of allocated wines that are 
small production, highly sought after, highly reputable wines from Italy and France. And um, so we would send out a, a, an allocated pre-sale back in like January, February and say, you know, hey, I can offer you a case. I can offer you six bottles. I can offer you whatever. And here's the price and it'll be here in March. And so these restaurants would say, yes, I'll take it. I want my allocation. I'll take my six bottles. I'll take my case, whatever it is. So March hits. The wine shows up about March 15th or so. And a lot of the accounts are like, well, I've already kind of blown my budget for this month, so why don't you send it to me April 1st? Okay, no problem. You got it. Well, what happens April 1st? Restaurants aren't open. <laughs> so we end up having to reallocate those wines and offer them to retail, offer them to places that normally uh, wouldn't have access to those. Um, and again, that's just kind of up to the... Uh, the, the, the mindset of the winery and kind of where they want their things to be sold. So now you can buy it at Central Market? Sometimes. Not always, but sometimes, yeah, certainly. Well, are there any other points about distribution that we have not hit on that you think are interesting? And what, what in all of this is unique to Texas? Well, we have the TABC, which is a bear of a, of a, of a government entity in and of itself. Um, I think every state has unique liquor laws, and unique uh, distribution laws. But I think from what I've been told, I, I've never sold wine anywhere else but Texas, but from what I've been told, Texas is pretty unique when it comes to the, the three-tier system and whatnot and, and the, the loopholes and the, the hoops you have to jump through to make it, make it work. So um, that's definitely a factor. Um, I would just say overall, like there's, there's, there's one thing about Texas wine that I think bothers a lot of people, um, and I, th- I think it's the fact that there's no law that says that you can't buy spill-off juice from California and bottle it in, uh, you know, Georgetown and call it Georgetown juice. There, there's, there's no law that says you can't do that. And so a lot of people are calling it Texas wine, but it's not really real. It's not grown here, right? So I think guys like Doug Lewis, for instance, are, like, trying to go to the Capitol and, like, actually – write legislation and, and help uh, lobby to, to try and get that a thing, kind of like it is in, in, in Oregon, in, in Willamette Valley. You know, We've um, talked about that a little bit on the podcast. Yeah. I know that's coming up again in the 2021 legislature. So yeah. it only has to be 75% Texas fruit to be labeled Texas. Right. And under the proposed legislation, it will have to be 100% Texas yeah. fruit. I think that's important. I've, I lived in California for a little while. I wasn't in the wine business, but I can tell you that uh, Texans are certainly proud of Texas, and you realize that when you move away. <laughs> and if you meet anybody that's uh, from Texas, like, oh, my God, you're here. <laughs> so true. Wine's the same thing. We want to be proud of it and, and, and make sure it's really ours, you know. So Yeah, I think truth and labeling is very important. So yeah. I, I just want to know what's in it. If it's California, great. Put on a California label. I totally actually, fine. I recorded a podcast this morning, and the, the term American, when it a- appears on a wine bottle, it only has to be 75% American fruit. So it can be 25% bulk juice from another country, which I find fascinating. It can yeah, be 25% bulk from Italy or Spain or anywhere. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. TTB has its own set of unique labeling laws. Yes. Well, I sure appreciate your time, Derek, and thank you for all that you do getting wine to us. It's critical, especially now in pandemic times. We need it. Yes, I agree. And, and, you know, for better or worse, uh, alcohol seems to be a bit recession proof because you drink when you're up, you drink when you're down. (laughs) So if I can help facilitate that at all, uh, it's it's a I, I could be in a worse business. That's for sure. 
Now here's my interview with Eric Sigman, COO of Ready Vineyards. Be sure to stick around until the end when Eric shares his top five tips for independent wineries that are seeking placements. My name is Eric Sigmund. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Ready Vineyards. Uh, Ready Vineyards is one of the leading vineyards in the state of Texas. First planted in 1997 by Dr. B.J. Reddy, uh, and today he is widely revered as one of the founding fathers and pioneers of the Texas wine industry. Uh, we are one of the largest suppliers of premium Texas grapes to producers throughout the state. We have 310 acres planted to 38 different grape varietals. And one of the things that Dr. Reddy is really known for, in addition to being uh, a supplier of those premium grapes and partner for producers throughout Texas, is he has really helped lead innovation and research into what varietals grow well in the warmer Texas climate. So with those 38 varietals, we've really been able to identify you know, what, what is well suited for the Texas High Plains and other growing regions in Texas. Uh, in addition to being a supplier of grapes, recently, uh, officially back in June of 2019, we launched our own estate brand of 100% uh, Texas, 100% estate-grown and produced wines. These are boutique wines, small production, really handcrafted, primarily featuring warm-weather varietals. And we like to do blends, red blends, white blends, but we will also feature some single varietal selections as well for those grapes that really show to be particularly successful for uh, any given vintage. Great. So you joined the Ready team pretty much when the first wines were released back in June of 19? Uh, I joined them a little bit earlier than that, uh, officially in February of 2019, and had been consulting with them for about nine months prior to that as well. But I was sort of brought on board to, to lead the effort of launching the brand, sales, marketing, uh, getting the wines out to people, and really working and overseeing the operations of not only the winery, but uh, the sales operations, distribu distribution of the wines within Texas as well. So what has your case production been in the first year or so of, of Ready Vineyards? Yeah, our annual production is three to 5,000 cases, depending on uh, the vintage so this year, for example, we're anticipating doing a little bit less than what we even had planned uh, simply because the vineyard output isn't there this year because of last October's freeze. But uh, our target is to be in that sort of three to 5,000 case sweet spot. So definitely a, a small production winery. And we would anticipate staying at that level uh, for the next couple of years, although we do have the capacity internally to uh, increase production. And was it clear to you from the start that you would self-distribute rather than work with a distributor? Yeah, the initial idea was to self-distribute. We were also hoping to open one or even multiple tasting rooms within Texas. Uh, that plan has sort of been sidelined for the time being because of coronavirus. Uh, it's just a very tricky uh, market situation right now. So we're being pretty cautious in that regard. We ultimately plan to, to self-distribute within Dallas-Fort Worth, where I live, um, but then also throughout the state in general as well. I've heard that when you look at Texas, that you have to consider the different large markets in Texas 
as almost like completely different states. How has that looked for you as you've approached the Dallas market, Houston, San Antonio, Austin, et cetera? How have you started to form strategies around how to go into each of those markets? Yeah, Texas is particularly challenging because of its size. It's just a very large state. There's a lot of territory to cover. And as you mentioned, each different city really does have its own unique identity, uh, has its own clientele. Certainly what you'll see down in Austin or San Antonio is maybe a greater knowledge and appetite for Texas wines, simply because of its proximity to the Hill Country uh, wine trail down there and other wineries. Uh, Whereas in Dallas-Fort Worth, one of the reasons we made that a priority to focus on is we think that Texas wine is really flying under the radar here, hasn't been appreciated and recognized not only for its quality, but um, you don't see it widely available in in Dallas-Fort Worth. So we saw that as an opportunity to make a mark for Ready Vineyards, but also to be able to increase accessibility to Texas wines here. You know, when I'm working and, you know, strategizing about how I'm going to approach uh, clients in different territories, I I, I definitely take sort of a uniform approach to going about with that strategy. Uh, And then, of course, we'll make uh, different adjustments based on the clientele or the type of retailer that I'm looking to partner with, whether it's an independent wine shop or a restaurant or a big box retailer. Uh, I will always try to tailor my specific pricing strategies, the way that I approach them based on who they are and where they're located. So when you look into a new market, how do you identify the right type of restaurant and or wine store um, to find the right placement for your wines? Or do you consider some of the larger retailers like a Specs or a Total Wine, do they operate on a statewide level to where you can get a statewide placement? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the first thing you have to do is really understand your own product and use that as the starting place. Where do you want to see your product marketed? Who are you trying to reach? And what's the price point that you're trying to have established in the market? And I think ultimately the most important things come down to pricing. And we could talk about that a little bit more, but Um, Certainly in regards to how that works with different retailers, when I'm searching for partners throughout Texas, I use price point as my starting place. Um, Because we're offering a smaller production, more boutique handcrafted wine, uh, naturally our cost of production for those wines is higher. So we would need to have a higher retail pricing in the market in order for it to be worthwhile for us to, to sell that product. Keep in mind, too, when you're partnering with somebody else, you're selling to them at wholesale price. So you're already taking a hit on your bottom line so that the retailer has an incentive through their margin to be able to sell that product for you. So uh, I use some very simple tools when I am formulating my strategy and who to target, especially when in a new market and maybe not one that I'm as familiar with. So I'll use things uh, just like Google or Yelp. And I will do searches for restaurants, but I will immediately categorize down by price point and filter down to price point the types of accounts I'm looking for. So I know that my wines, uh, at least the wines that we have been uh, actively selling over the last 14 months, uh, will not work in places that are like Chili's or Applebee's, Olive Garden, chain restaurants. 
uh, simply aren't going to have really the appetite or the interest for Texas wine at this point, unfortunately. But also um, that th we wouldn't ever be able to find uh, a medium in terms of price point that would make it worthwhile for either of us to operate together. So I'm, you know, I'm doing very simple uh, strategies. You know, I'm filtering down to three and four dollar sign uh, restaurants uh, or partners, and that already gives me a more narrow um, pool of folks to target. Once I have that, you know, I'm doing a lot of research, and you have to do a lot of research in advance in order to really be able to target those folks who you think are going to be willing and open to this, uh, open to Texas wine. You know, I'm looking at wine lists of restaurants. Do they currently carry Texas wine? What are the price points on their wines? Are they trying to sell primarily by the glass at $10 to $15, a restaurant that probably doesn't make a lot of sense for us for uh, many of our wines? Or they, they have a, a deep by the bottle assortment? Uh, do they feature wines from all over the world or just California or just France or Europe? Um, and then what do those prices look like as well? So, you know, I always try to find the low-hanging fruit. I'm looking for partners uh, that have a robust wine list, that have a wide representation of wines from around the world. Certainly, if they already have Texas wines uh, on the, the menu, that's low-hanging fruit. That's a good opportunity to shake hands, to set up a tasting, to introduce those, to introduce our wines uh, to uh, their beverage director, their SOM, their manager. But even if they don't, if they still have a robust list, uh, that's still a, a good opportunity for me too. One of the things that I have seen, which is really inspiring and makes me very optimistic for Texas wineries, uh, even those that are doing self-distribution, which is extremely challenging, is that folks tend to be more open-minded about Texas wines now than they may have been previously, even in higher end steakhouses, seafood uh, restaurants, uh, those that you might not immediately think would be big supporters of Texas wines because they have either more corporate driven programs or they tend to feature wines from more traditional regions like Napa, Sonoma, Bordeaux, uh, Tuscany, whatever it may be. Eric, am I correct that you are new to the Dallas market and that you previously worked in French wine, so you're also new to Texas wine, right? Yeah, so I was really not familiar with Texas wine at all before the Reddy family reached out to me uh, about two and a half years ago at this point. I had previously been working for Total Wine & More, I worked as an assistant French wine buyer at their corporate headquarters in Bethesda, Maryland. And then prior to that, I was the wine manager for their flagship store, which was also located in Maryland. Um, and that's where I really cut my teeth in the wine industry. You know, that's Total Wine. It uh, has a big representation in Texas, so folks are familiar with that. Uh, but our store in Maryland was particularly unique, not only because of its proximity to, you know, the corporate headquarters, but because of the sheer volume of the business that we did out there. Uh, so our store alone was a $50 million box driven primarily by wine sales. Uh, we had over 8,000 selections, different producers, different labels. So there was a lot to manage. So I was exposed and became very knowledgeable about regions around the world, uh, which is really one of the highlights of Total Wine and More. Uh, they just have a depth of selection that you don't find very many places. So, you know, I had the opportunity to not only 
learn about those wines in those regions and sell those wines on a daily basis. But I also got the opportunity to travel with them as well. So I met family, small producers, sort of like us in France, uh, all throughout Bordeaux and Burgundy, Champagne, uh, Rhone Valley, uh, northern Spain. I went to Napa and Sonoma and met some of the the premier producers out there, too. So um, that really helped give me a solid background, not only into just different wine regions, but in particular, the, the retail side and the distribution network, too. You know, we worked with distributors, large, Republic, Southern, but then also very small and very boutique, too. So understanding how they operate, understanding uh, the retail world and what a retailer expects from a partnership, not just from a distributor, but also all the way down to a supplier level, um, really helped give me a, a better sense of how to approach the launch of the Ready Wines here in Texas. I know you did have some great successes in getting some Ready Wines in Total Wine in a couple of different cities in Texas. So was that a result of relationships you had at Total Wine or was that just a result of efforts that you made starting from scratch in Texas? You know, I think it was a little bit of both. It was no cakewalk getting that wine into Total Wine. In fact, I was trying to get a much larger portion of our portfolio and our offerings in. They ultimately accepted two wines, uh, which we are incredibly grateful for. Um, And now you could find our field blend and our TNT red blend at 32 Total Wines uh, throughout Texas. You know, having those relationships was definitely beneficial to be able to know who the decision maker was and be able to reach out to the decision maker. But, you know, I think everybody sort of put their friendship aside. And yes, we had those good relationships. Ultimately, they're looking for products that will help amplify their selection and will help give them more velocity in sales, too. Ultimately, a partnership only really makes sense if they're going to be able to sell the wine. The more wine they sell, the more wine I sell to them, the better it is for both parties. Uh, It never makes sense for me to approach an account just to get a one-time sale. Uh, because that's just not a partnership. That's not what you're trying to accomplish. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to get yourself in the door and get a placement and an account. So you have to be able to continue to support that. Um, And to be able to do that, we had to show them about uh, a year's worth of sales history in order for them to say, this is worth us taking on, especially at a higher price point. Uh, The wines that you'll see that are placed there are generally a higher retail than uh, most other Texas competitors in those stores. So it was a bit of a, a reach for them, but uh, I'm glad that we've had that opportunity. They've been a strong supporter and we've uh, been selling some, some good wine through them. So we're really excited about that partnership. How much wine does a Texas winery have to produce to be in, in a store like that? Do they make you commit to a certain case production to have those placements? Uh, Total Wine in particular did not. And from what I've seen working with other retailers, they generally don't either. You know, they are more concerned about your prior six months or year sales history. They want to be able to see that you're established in the market, uh, that you're willing to market and advertise your products independently so that you could drive traffic to those shops. Uh, so that folks will go in, know that their products are there, and will shop with them. Again, kind of uh, going back to that, just it's a partnership. So, you know, we're hoping that by being in accounts like Total Wine, and uh, we're also uh, finalizing um, some deals with a couple other 
larger uh, grocery style retailers in Texas that we will be able to grow with them. And then they will also grow with us as well. Uh, again, it's only a good situation if, if everybody could sell that wine together. And we hope that by having these placements, we'll be able to increase our visibility in the marketplace, increase our reach, and then ultimately increase production levels as well. That's great. I know that you have done dozens, I assume dozens and dozens of dinners at restaurants. And I assume that has either been because you're on those restaurant wine lists or you're trying to get on those restaurant wine lists. But I love how people can be introduced to Texas wines. I, that's where we met at one of the dinners that, where I just showed up and said, hi, I'm Shelly. I'm writing about this for Texas Wine Lover. And uh, there were several people there that had never had Texas wine before. And I think that if mm-hmm. you can't be at a winery or at a tasting room, that having someone explain to you over dinner what Texas wine is all about is a great place to be. Tell me about how you have been developing that restaurant strategy. Yeah, I think it's a big misconception, especially among producers, that restaurants or retailers are not interested in Texas wine. And I think if you don't pursue all those opportunities, you're missing opportunities to get yourself into the marketplace and maybe make a partnership that will help give you more exposure and really help launch your brand. When you're looking for a partner, again, I kind of look at partners differently depending on who they are. Uh, If it's a big box retailer, say a Total Wine, uh, I know that they're expecting something different, not only from a pricing strategy, but also from marketing exposure than maybe an independent retail shop would versus maybe what a restaurant would be interested in. You know, restaurants are really unique in that uh, the pricing strategies for restaurants have to be very carefully crafted. uh, And you're generally not making as much money as you would selling to a restaurant uh, than as you would uh, to an independent wine shop or especially to a big box retailer because you you have to give away a lot more margin in order to be able to find that that right fit. Uh, And pricing tends to be a lot more aggressive, uh, especially when you're competing against the big players like Southern Glaciers and Republic and the partners that they represent uh, to be able to to get into the market, especially as an independent brand, especially as a small producer that may be new to the market and might not have big name recognition. So being able to tell that brand story is really important. But besides that, you really have to find unique ways to make yourself valuable uh, to those clients and find ways to make them value you equally as a partner too. So maybe that's uh, by the glass versus by the bottle placements, uh, offering them what we call QDs, uh, quantity discounts if they're buying in bulk. But then to your point, Shelly, it's also going above and beyond and finding other ways uh, that maybe they can partner without making a commitment by putting you on the wine list. So a great way to do that is with wine dinners. And we've been successful uh, working with current partners who already carry our wines, uh, but also with folks who may be a little hesitant to put your wine on the menu because it is Texas wine and they're not sure how their clientele will respond. Whereas a wine dinner is sort of a a one-time commitment that gives a partner an opportunity to test the waters among their clients, get feedback from their clientele about what they thought about the wines and that dinner. And it also puts you on a stage a little bit too and shows how you perform. 
Are you a reliable partner? Do you help with the marketing and advertising? Can you also help drive people to buy those tickets for those dinners? And it's not just the partner relying on their own network to do so. Uh, but the wine dinners are a tremendous way to get your foot in the door and to, to build a, a partnership. And they're a lot of fun, too. It gives you the opportunity to, to get up in front of a group of people, uh, many of whom who may not have ever had Texas wine before, and introduce something new. And the best way to be able to tell your story is in person. So I love working with those partners on wine dinners because I have the chance to meet new folks, uh, tell, tell them about our brand, and lead them through sort of a guided tasting uh, with dinner pairings or food pairings. Uh, in a really nice atmosphere. Well, at some point over the course of the last year, you have started thinking that perhaps it is time to look for a distributor. So talk to me about the thinking behind that decision. So the initial plan was was to self-distribute for the first two, maybe even three years. We knew that in order to really scale up and to become recognized or available regionally, and then hopefully nationally, that that would require a distributor partnership. And that could, uh, you know, look a few different ways, depending on the size of that distributor, what states you're trying to enter into. Uh, But it was really the the whole coronavirus situation that caused us to pivot uh, in a couple different ways. Certainly, first, we, like a lot of Texas wineries, pivoted to more e-commerce and online sales, hosting virtual tastings. Uh, But we also needed that ability to get access to more restaurants or, in particular, more retail locations that are really thriving right now during coronavirus, even though all that on-premise business has gone away. So we had already had plans in the works to produce another tier of wines that was more aptly suited for a grocery uh, that something that could be more widely distributed and could be at a more competitive price point relative to the wines that we had been already introducing to the market. So for us, you know, it wasn't just the strategy of can I get a distributor, but also do I have the types of products, the branding, the marketing, the diversity of products that would be appealing to a distributor? Uh, because getting involved with uh, a distributor can be very challenging too. They're they're choosy. And that's a very tough market to be able to penetrate. But if you can find a distributor to that would be a good partner for you, I think that would only be beneficial in a lot of cases. Uh, and again, you know, there's there's a misconception that distributors are the big bad wolves out there in the market, uh, that they're designed to crush small independent brands and that there's no place in their portfolio for small and independent brands. And yes, because of national trends, uh, distributor consolidation, and just the the nature, the competitiveness of the distributor market, it can be very challenging to access a partner that can provide a really good benefit to you. But at the end of the day, distributors do a lot of things for you. Not only the things that you don't necessarily want to do yourself, like driving wine all over the state, uh, which is something we do. Uh, but they also give you access. And just to hit that point home, you know, the last 14 months or so since being on the market, uh, we've been able to build uh, 80 or 90 different accounts throughout the state. 
But if I get a call or a purchase order via email from Total Wine in Houston and they want one case, I got to go drive four hours each way to go deliver that case if I want to make sure that that item is in stock. And that's the same with Austin, San Antonio. So it's that's just the nature of the business. You have to be willing to get in that car, to drive throughout the state, put 50,000 miles on my car last year alone, just making uh, deliveries and traveling out to the winery and doing all these things to get us into the market and to build that recognition and to get us sales. Well, it will be nice to have some assistance on the highways, I'm sure. Yeah, so what kinds of things, um, other than the actual transportation of the wine, what kind of things do you look for in a partnership? With the distributor? With the distributor. So when you're looking for distributors to partner, there are a few different things uh, to consider. I think the first is their size and their reach. So you need to sort of determine whether or not it's more beneficial to you to work with a very large distributor say the republics or the southern glaciers of the world, or it's better to work with a medium or small distributor. And there are a couple different uh, advantages and disadvantages to both of those. So working with somebody like Republic or Southern Glaciers, they are the most powerful distribution brands in the entire country. They will be able to provide you access uh, like no other brand will. They have a, a distribution network that is so extensive, it's almost incomprehensible. Uh, warehouses throughout the state, their own trucking and logistics programs, uh, sales representatives, uh, teams of sales representatives that are large, uh, folks who work under those sales representatives as merchandisers who help uh, make sure that the presentation of your display in the store uh, is the best that it possibly can. Uh, there's a lot of benefits to working with a, a large distributor like that. On the other hand, those large distributors have extremely deep portfolios. So as a small, independent, and emerging brand, how are you going to be able to work with them to make sure that your items are getting placements, are getting into wine bags of representatives, and are being talked about at these various clients that you're trying to, to get into? You know, keep in mind that you know, a standard wine bag only has 12 slots and that representatives are often working on commission. So they're trying to sell the wines that are going to make them the most money so that they can hit their own personal targets that are set by companies, but so that they can make more money too. So in a portfolio of hundreds or thousands of wines, you know, how do you find ready vineyards getting into that 12 bottle bag so that it is presented to a client? Okay. And do you feel like you're competing against the other Texas wines that are in the portfolio? Since we're self-distributing, I can't really speak personally about that experience. But if I was to, to take a step back just objectively, I'd say yes to some extent, because at the end of the day, you're each independent brands. And yes, your placement might come at the expense of somebody else and vice versa. It might be zero sum. On the other hand, if there is a robust Texas portfolio, and especially, and this is what really I think matters, if the distributor is passionate about supporting Texas brands, you'll find ways to leverage that portfolio and create partnerships among those wineries in order to be able to present multiple different brands to one retailer 
and get those in. So, you know, Texas Wine Month is coming up. That's a great opportunity, for example, for a distributor to say, look, I have a portfolio of 10 or 15 Texas wines. Um, you know, whereas typically you might only be looking for one or two, here's a great time where you could bring in a bunch. We can make some nice end caps that focus on Texas wine, can make some nice displays. And that's an opportunity for even those producers to get together behind the scenes and to do a little co-branding or marketing. So I don't want to give away all the proprietary tips and tricks because, you know, that they have their own teams and they have their own methods. But that's a way to do that, to juxtapose that with the small distributor they will maybe have more inclination to represent your product on a more day-to-day basis because their portfolio just isn't as deep. But at the same time, they're not going to have A, the same network, or B, the same capacity in terms of personnel or reach that a large distributor might have. So you might get more face time uh, and more presentation time with those folks. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, can that translate into more conversions and sales? So finding that balance can be really tricky. And you have to, you know, interview multiple distributors, ask them these tough questions, ask them their margin expectations and what they're bringing to the table, too, because it is a partnership and the supplier can't have the entire burden of doing that work by yourself. You know, it has to be shared with the distributor and a distributor that's willing to match your effort and can do things for you that you otherwise would not be able to do independently, that's a good partner. Well, I know that you have some tips for wineries that may be considering looking into a distribution arrangement. Yeah, so I have sort of five general tips uh, to help independent wineries be able to not only access a distributor, but to help find clients as well. Um, The first would be to research very well, uh, understand the immense time commitment that's required for wide scale distribution. And if you want to do this on a smaller scale by focusing on, you know, just your community, you know, that might make it more manageable at the beginning, but still the time commitment for getting in the door, following up, delivering the wine, supporting those clients is really difficult. So the first thing you have to do is, you know, research very well understand your target market, those partners, be able to identify the right fits for you. If your wine is just too expensive for that restaurant or that retailer, it's not the right fit. Be narrow. You can't spend your time trying to get into every place. You just don't have that time. It's just too challenging. So choose wisely. Uh, Keep a database of who you're trying to work with and, uh, you know, really be able to identify the decision maker in that building who could be a good partner for you. The second tip is have a very robust understanding of pricing and margins. So we sort of talked about this a little bit earlier. You have to understand that not all accounts are created equal. The independent retailer is going to expect a different level of margin than the big box retailer, potentially 15 to 20% more. So you have to adjust your pricing accordingly. Restaurants are the biggest conundrum because in order to be able to make it worthwhile and you know restaurants will mark up 250 to 300 percent, you have to work backwards from where you want your wine to be priced on the menu to them having enough margin to you making enough money to make it worthwhile. And ultimately, this game is not about how much wine you know, the, the, the price of the bottle you're selling it at, it's about how much you could sell. Velocity is always more important 
than than dollars in general, especially at the beginning. But understanding those margin dollars is really important. For instance, I have three different pricing sheets that I will present to different clients. I will give one pricing sheet to my restaurants, which offers uh, by the bottle pricing, but then incentivizes by the glass pricing because I know that I will get more velocity and hopefully more sales if my wine is by the glass um, versus uh, independent wine shops. I know that they're looking for a lot more margin than if I'm presenting to Total Wine or to Costco or to HEB or United or something like that. So, um, you know, you don't want to undersell yourself either. And being flexible in your pricing arrangements is really, really important. Uh, The third tip is to communicate regularly and do not give up. When I first started knocking on doors, I had a very low conversion rate. I think I would only convert maybe 10% of the folks that I tasted to buying a product and putting that on their menu. And for me, I was very satisfied with that. As a new brand, especially a Texas wine that might have the perception that uh, it's not going to be widely adopted by clients and drank by clients, that was good. You know, I've been able to, because of sales, uh, because of the placements I've earned, been able to increase that conversion rate. But I'm still sitting at about a 20% conversion rate. So it takes a lot of time and effort to uh, set up appointments, cold calling, uh, knocking on doors, doing those tastings, following up. Sometimes it might take months after your tasting and even after a beverage director or decision maker gives you a commitment to give you that first order. So oftentimes, you know, I would expect a, especially in a restaurant, two to three month lag time for an order. So you just have to be persistent. You have to keep communicating with folk and you have to help them find ways to deplete that inventory so you get reordered. The fourth tip is finding different ways to support your partners. So I mentioned a few different incentives earlier. So uh, buy the glass pricing versus buy the bottle pricing. So we will sell our wines at a less expensive wholesale price in order to try to get them on that smaller buy the glass menu with the exchange sort of being the hope or the expectation that you'll sell more wine as a result. Uh, Quantity discounts, especially if you're working with wine shops or independent retailers. Staff trainings, you know, once the product is in the building doesn't mean that your job is ended. Now is a great opportunity to go educate the staff, set up a tasting with them, bring them samples, walk them through the wines, tell them how they should be presented. Tell them about all the cool things that you have highlighted on your label or what makes you unique, why you should recommend it, pairing suggestions, all those things to help. Uh, Wine dinners are another great way not only to support your clients, but as we talked about, get your foot in the door with clients that might be hesitant to make a purchase. Promotional materials. Uh, And then one of the most important that I don't think people uh, realize is really key is to patronize those clients. Go visit them. Go spend your own money with them. There's no better way to show your partner that you value them than to go and dine with them or to buy a bottle from them. Uh, Even if it's your own product, I do that all the time with my wife. Uh, We have monthly date nights. We will always go to clients um, and we will often buy a bottle of our own wine, not only because it's really darn good, but because it shows our commitment to that partner and how much we value them. And, uh, you know, they will honestly treat you like royalty, too. 
and be you know happy to be able to to service you that evening and to work with you in the future. Really, really important. And then the fifth tip uh, is just very simple. It's just be reliable and always bring wine. Whether you're just knocking on the door for the first time, just trying to get a business card, or you're just walking in to look at a merchandising set, bring wine with you because you never know. Maybe that decision maker that you were just trying to get a future appointment with next week, maybe they have time now to sit down with you and to taste that wine. If you don't have that wine with you, you've blown that opportunity. If you're walking into a retail shop, bring some sample bottles for the staff to try because the staff that you trained you know, two months ago might not be the same staff that you see today. So always be prepared to, to give out samples, you know, have that as a part of your marketing budget, you know, be reliable with your deliveries, understand your client's delivery schedule, because everybody's going to want uh, you to deliver at different times, and always be there when they need you. Wow, great tips. I think that'll be so helpful for wineries that are out there trying to get placements and uh, get their wines on shelves and on restaurant wine lists. I know it's hard work and you've been doing it well for well over a year and I'm sure you're ready for some assistance. So we're excited for uh, what's to come with Ready Vineyards as well as your new lineup of wines. You have a lot of new wines that have just hit the market or some that are still to come in the, in the market. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll be anticipating an announcement, too, about a new distributor. When is that decision coming or that announcement coming? Uh, we hope if everything goes according to plan that uh, we will have a distributor partner in October. So we are actively working to uh, get set up and uh, are very, very excited to be able to, to partner uh, with this distributor And we think that uh, it'll be a great relationship for for both parties. Thank you for being with us today, Eric. Yeah, Shelly, it's my pleasure. Thank you for for having me on. And I hope uh, some of these tips and other advice will be beneficial to the uh, Texas audience. Thank you, Eric. I hope you enjoyed these interviews. If you have suggestions for topics or people you'd like to hear interviewed on this podcast, please let me know. My email is texaswinepod at gmail.com. So on my trip to the Texas Hill Country, I took with me a bottle of William Chris's 2019 Wanderer Series Relief Project Red Blend. This wine has a cool story, but if you haven't already found it, you're probably out of luck. It sold out quickly because it was a relief wine to aid the Texas restaurant industry workers that were in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. The back of the bottle says, Our community has made William Chris what it is today. In return, we've collaborated with our friend and master sommelier, Craig Collins, to create this Texas Red Blend. The proceeds will support the incredible group of chefs, servers, psalms, and bartenders in the Texas restaurant community to help them get back to doing what they love. The wine retailed for $20 and was sold in locations across the state and on the William Chris website. The blend was 95% Cinso and 5% Morved, and the fruit was from the High Plains. I was lucky to find this at both my independent wine shop and at Whole Foods. After I tried it, I went and bought more because it was really good, especially with a bit of a chill. It was only 12.2% alcohol by volume. 
When I took this down to the hill country, I didn't finish the bottle the first night or actually the second night, and it tasted good even on the third day. That's always a good sign. 100% of the profits went to the Southern Smoke Foundation to help the Texas hospitality industry, and I think the wine resulted in a donation of around $40,000. Houston chef Chris Shepard operates the Southern Smoke Foundation. When I talked to Chris Brundrett of William Chris Vineyards recently about this wine, he was quick to point out that every vendor he talked to donated their goods and services to make this wine happen. From the bottles to the cork to foils to labels, the wine was made and ready in four to five weeks, which is in record time. And Chris said something cool when we talked about this wine. He was talking about what it was like to work with Craig Collins, and he said, I got the feeling of what it might be as a musician to jam with another really great musician. There was this air the day we were blending that wine for the final blend. We felt the pressure. It was time to go. We were just jamming. We were having so much fun. Craig was like really sweet and a great blending partner. And he was like, look, you and Tony are making the wine. And we were like, hey, we'd love your opinion. This is our project. We're going to all do it together. And he was super awesome to blend with. And, you know, I think in the end, we came up with a really great wine that helped a lot of people. Chris goes on to talk about how great the Southern Smoke Foundation is and how much good they've done for Texas. I want to say thank you to Jeff Cope and Texas Wine Lover website for helping spread the word about this podcast. Don't forget to visit TXWineLover.com if you ever have a question about a Texas winery or a Texas vineyard. Thanks, Texas Wine Lover. And just a few reminders. Please go to my website, ThisIsTexasWine.com, for full show notes for this episode. While you're there, subscribe to our very occasional newsletter. And please subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. Instead of waiting two weeks for your next episode, it's going to come very shortly. It will be an interview with Roxanne Myers about Save Texas Wineries. Connect with me on social media. I'm at Texas Wine Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm most active on Instagram. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Texas Wine. Cheers, y'all. Cheers, y'all.